bah humbug. That little phrase, that, that couple words, was made famous by the main character, Ebenezer Scrooge, in the famous Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. And if you remember the story, it focuses on Ebenezer Scrooge, who isn't the most pleasant person to be around. So if, let me just say this, if you tend to complain about your job, your current place of employment, think you could work for Ebenezer Scrooge. You could have it much worse. But in this story, Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And these ghosts come to him, and Scrooge ends up seeing the works that he has done and what those works will lead to in the future and what, what kind of damage and, and, and difficulty they're even causing in the lives of others. And by the end of the, the story, he decides to change the way that he's living. He sees what he has done and he wants to live differently. Now, there are many versions of the story that have been created for plays and movies uh, all through the years. It's debated, but perhaps the most accurate rendition of that is the Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, I only watched it a couple years ago for the first time, thanks to John Folkrod. Um, and now my kids uh, enjoy watching it. But as we think about this, the, a Christmas Carol, and this is, this is a time to respond, can you think of the author of that story? Okay, rolls off your tongue. In just about every play, right, the bill and the, the advertisements for movies, you often see A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And we know that author very well. Well, today we are going to start looking at A Christmas Carol by Matthew. And I know that doesn't have the same kind of ring to it, but... We want to look at Matt, what Matthew has written for us. Um, and as fun as work, a, 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 of a work that Charles Dickens has done in that story, the, the story that Matthew gives us focuses our attention on the heart of Christmas. And it's from, as we think about this story, I want us to travel back in time to those months leading up to the first Christmas because it's from that perspective and that vantage point that I want to view, I want us to view the story that Matthew has in verses or chapters one and two. We'll look we'll look at these over the next three uh, Sundays, and we'll look at uh, God's work in the past this morning, God's work in the present next week, and God's work in the future on New Year's Day. But Matthew focuses our attention on the work of God. Christmas is a story about God's work. Then, now, in the present of what he did on that first Christmas, and in the future, what he has continued and will continue to do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the story of creation starts. In the book of Genesis, Genesis 1.1. And from there, details are given about what and how God created. He created all things that we know and experience. And the climax of his creation was the creation of man and woman on day six. And if you know how Genesis 1 unfolds at the very end of chapter 1, we know chapter divisions were added later, but at the end of chapter 1, we're told that God rested. 
Now, it wasn't that God had to rest because he was tired. He needed a break from everything he was doing. But what was he doing? He was, he was setting the rhythm for life for these men and women that he created and for all of creation. It's why we have a seven-day week. Six days we work, seven day, on, the day, on day seven we rest and we here gather for worship. So God hasn't stopped working. We only have to go a little bit further in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 3. And who do we find working on the behalf of Adam and Eve? God himself, after Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, God went to work on their behalf. To start and bring about their, their own salvation. You see, God is always at work. He must be at work. It is God who holds the stars in place, the sun, the moon, all that we see in in our galaxy. He is right now holding them in place. He causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine and the plants to grow. It is God who brings new life and he sustains our life. Your heart is beating because of the work of God. And so all around us, we see God's work. And God's work extends all the way back to the very beginning. You see, the history of the world is a history of God's work. So as Matthew writes for us this biography of Jesus' life, he, he writes with the goal of, yes, making sure that we know who Jesus is. Isn't that why any biography is written? Somebody's writing about someone else's life so that that story would be told over and over and that people that would come later would know about the life of that person. That was one of Matthew's goals. But the person of Jesus himself is evidence of God's work. In Jesus, God literally steps into the story of man. He becomes like us. But before we get to that birth of Christ, which we'll look at next week, before that first Christmas, God was already working. This morning, we want to look at the past work of God, and that work of God brought about the promised Messiah King. How did God work in the past? I got four points for us this morning. And they'll all sound very similar, except for one preposition that I'll change in each of these four points. So let's, let's go right into this sermon this morning. Number one, we want to look at God's work in humanity. God's work in humanity. See, of all of God's creation, mankind is the pinnacle Like everything of of the creation week was leading up to day number six when God would create man and woman in his image. They were created uniquely, not like the other animals. And no matter what what your view of God is this morning, you understand that humanity is created different than other things. If a dead cat is found lying by the side of the road, it might be a sad emotion that we feel. Some of you might be happy, I don't know. Well, let's go with sad. But that 
that is a lot different than we, if we were to find a, a dead person on the side of the road. We instinctively know there's something different. Man and woman are created uniquely. They're created different than the other animals, than the other created things. And so even if we care for created things, we understand humanity is unique. And it's in humans that God's plan is unfolding. God came into this world as a man for mankind. And this is why Matthew details the genealogy of Jesus. He traces his ancestry. Now, in recent years, ancestry has become pretty, pretty popular, at least among Americans. I don't know what other nations do with Ancestry.com and all those things. But America is, is just a melting pot of ethnicities and, and all, all those things with people, immigrants coming in for, for centuries now. And so we have this this fascination with our ancestry, trying to recreate our family trees and piece together our origins. Uh, maybe you have done that. But our family tree, ultimately, for all of us, are going to go back to the same two people, Adam and Eve. We're all from the same human race. But as Americans, we may be able to go back three or four or five generations and we connect all the dots. Oh, that's neat. This is where... You know, my great-great-grandparents came from, and, and if we can go back that far. But I'm guessing that any of us that have gone through our ancestry aren't tracing any royal bloodlines. Like, you're hoping, like, man, maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm an heir to the throne of some nation. We're, we're probably mostly common, the, the common people, if you will, but Matthew here, is, he's, his genealogy is tracing for us a royal bloodline. God had promised his people a Messiah. And the word Messiah, he, uh, the anointed one. He's promised them an anointed king that would come. And this is why Matthew details all of these names for us. Because the Jewish people were waiting for a king. They were waiting for the one who would come, the Messiah. Now, as Americans, once again, I'll go to us as Americans, we don't have a king. We don't have a royal bloodline. We elect a president. And most of the time, the, that president has no blood connection to former presidents, and the ones to come will probably not have blood connections, bloodline either from past presidents. But throughout history, most nations had royal lines of succession. The kings came from the family line. Probably the, the most helpful thing to us today is to think about England. And you, you have all of the, well, and then you have all the mess in that family of Prince Henry and, you know, I, all the rest of those things. But we, we sort of understand that. But that's not the culture that we live in. But for most nations, that's how the leaders came. And so the names listed in these verses, at least beginning in verse number 6, trace for us the royal line of Jesus. It's a, it's a succession of kings that would come from this family line of David. And what these names tell us is that Jesus is the rightful earthly king. He is the promised Messiah, the one that the Jews were waiting for. 
What I found interesting in thinking about these, these names is that God doesn't find a workaround to bring about his king. He doesn't say, well, we're not going to go this, in this direction. We're going to come in from the side. But no, his plan for the Messiah fits right in line with the normal human process. The Jewish people, they would, were known to keep accurate records related to their tribes, their clans, their ancestry. So if anything's out of place, they would know it. A lot of times we get, we get questions. How do you know if the Bible's true and accurate? Well, what Matthew is recording for us here, these names can be verified in the, the Jewish history books, which some of them happen to be in our Old Testament. The Jews hold the Old Testament in very high regard. Of course, the, the Judaism today rejects Jesus as the Messiah, but the Old Testament books, they are not questioned. So you go into the, the books of the kings and the Chronicles, and you see these kings mentioned. And so as Matthew's writing this, and it's being spread to both Jew and Gentile at, this, at his time, it's being verified by what has already been preserved and recorded in Jewish history. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the rightful Messiah King and that he is 100% human. He is one of us. And the humanity of Jesus is so important. If Jesus isn't human, he cannot be our Savior. If he isn't human, he cannot be our substitute. The substitute sacrifice for humans. And that's exactly what he did when he went to the cross. He was our substitute. Jesus became human to be our substitute. And you might be asking, well, a substitute for what? He came as a substitute for sinners. Each of us are sinners before God and in need of a substitute. Someone that is willing to pay the penalty we deserve, our penalty of death. Because if there is no substitute, then we pay that penalty ourselves. Jesus, 100% human. God is at work in humanity. Not only is God, has God worked in humanity to bring about his promised king, but secondly, God's, let's look at God's work with humanity. God's work in the line of men has come through covenants, going all the way back to the beginning. A covenant, in a very simplified way, is an agreement between two parties. And God has worked through both conditional, like if you do this, then I will do this. He's worked through conditional covenants, and he's worked through unconditional covenants. In other words, there's no condition attached to this agreement that I'm making with you. I will promise to do this. Two names show up in the genealogy. Well, I should say two names show up twice in our genealogy. In verse number one, it's not an accident that it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In verse number two, you have Abraham mentioned again. In verse number six, David is mentioned again, and it's showing where they are in this genealogy. But why are they listed multiple times? 
Because God has made unconditional covenants to them. Now, I want you to keep your finger right there in the book of Matthew, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12, page number 8, so almost at the beginning of our Bibles, because I want to look at the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Why is Abraham mentioned and David mentioned at the beginning of this genealogy? Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to read this for you this morning. Now, you'll read the name Abram. Later, God changes his name to Abraham. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, they're the same person, okay? Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him, and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God had set, in Genesis chapter 12, God set his favor on an irreligious man, Abraham. And God told Abraham that he would bless him and he would make his name great and he would make him into a great nation. And that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not because of anything Abraham had done, but because God had set his focus and chose Abraham to be the conduit through which God would work his plan. In Genesis 15 and 17, God reaffirms his covenant to Abraham and even expands on that that promise to Abraham by promising Abraham and his descendants an eternal land. Which, which pointed to our eternal destiny. You can read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. What was Abraham waiting for? Not just this earthly land, but he was waiting for the eternal city. And so God's covenant with Abraham was was not just a a here and now promise, but it was a promise of an eternal offspring in, in an eternal land. Someone from Abraham's offspring would bring blessing to all nation and secure the eternal promises of God given to Abraham. Well, Who would that be? Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul lays it out so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles or to all nations. Who is the promised offspring that would come? It is Jesus himself. In Christ Jesus, these blessings that have been promised to Abraham have come to pass. Jesus is that offspring and he... And, and that, that, that will make good on God's covenant with Abraham. Let's look at the second covenant that I, I want to turn our attention to, and that is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you would turn there as well. 2 Samuel 7, page 259. There's just too many verses to read on the screen. I thought it would be good to, to turn here anyway so you can see in your Bibles, in black and white, these promises that God had given. Second Samuel 7, 
Let me start at, at the second part of verse number 11. God is speaking here to David through the prophet Nathan. And he says, uh, verse number 11, about halfway through, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So you fast forward from God's promise to Abraham, and now we have Israel, an established nation with a king, and God makes a covenant with Israel's king, David. And God would bless the line of David, and an offspring of David would ensure that David's throne would be established forever. And what was God promising? He was promising an eternal king. For God's people and this king would come through the line of David. This was no temporal promise. It was a promise that would need to stand up through the dividing of Israel as a nation. Even through the overthrow of Israel by the Babylonians and the the, the Assyrians and they would be carried off into captivity. So when you read in Matthew chapter 1, you read this genealogy and it talks about the deportation of into Babylon, they were, the Israel was destroyed and ransacked and, and prisoners were scattered all over and carried off into captivity. Yet God's promise to David would need to remain true through all of that. God was at work. And this is why, we can turn back to Matthew chapter 1, this is why Matthew highlights both David and Abraham. And the Jewish people, they knew these promises. They were waiting for the promised offspring. And they could trace all the way back to Abraham, to David, through the deportation into Babylon. So by by the time you get to the end in verse number 16, God's covenants are firmly intact and are fulfilled in Christ. We see that at the end of verse number 16 in Matthew chapter 1, through Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. God hasn't just worked in humanity, He has worked with humanity in covenants with them. And so in the white space we read between these names in this genealogy are stories of God living in relationship with these people. Stories that we could go back and and we can fill in the blanks of what God has done and how he has worked with his people before. A relationship that was enabled by covenants he made with people in the past. And today we come into relationship with God through the new covenant. Maybe you've heard of that. 
I mean, like the covenant with Abraham and David, the new covenant is made by God with his people through Jesus Christ. Long before Jesus ever came, God spoke through Jeremiah, his prophet. And and I do have this on the screen for you. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant. This is talking about the new covenant that God is making with his people. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Just before Jesus gives his life on a cross, he echoes these words of Jeremiah. As he gathers his disciples for that first communion meal. If you you remember that scene... Jesus holds the cup in his hand and he says these words and we'll we'll, we'll read the words from Matthew 26 and verse number 28. For this is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. The thing that God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah, the covenant that he had established then is now come to pass through Jesus Christ. God is a covenant-keeping God. And His work in the past brings confidence for His work in the future. God's work through Abraham and David, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new covenant. The King has come. And He is the eternal offspring of Abraham and the eternal King on David's throne. So we praise God this morning for his covenant faithfulness. God has worked in humanity. God has worked with humanity. Number three, let's look at God's work through humanity. As I mentioned, God has always been at work in this world, but God's work is not bound by the thoughts and the culture of men. God has worked through the least likely of people. And so this morning, I want us to consider these names listed here for us and how God has worked through them. God has worked through humanity through the lowly. Now, in this genealogy, you will notice that there are four women listed in this genealogy. In verse number three, in verses five and six, and I don't, I don't say God works through the lowly and let me, let's focus now on women. I don't know why I keep getting these texts about women and what God wants to teach us through women. Um, but culturally speaking, women were insignificant other than their ability to bear children. And their inclusion in a kingly genealogy would be the kind of thing that you might say, well, let's skip over those names. We're not really lying, we're just... We're just adjusting the truth a little bit. We're leaving that part out. However, Matthew isn't putting a spin on history. He's he's giving it to us straight and he's letting us know that God was at work through both men and women. We have Tamar, and this is the Tamar from Genesis 38. There's another Tamar that's mentioned later. uh, uh, I believe in 1st or 2nd Samuel. But this is Genesis 38, Tamar and Judah. You have Rahab from Joshua chapter 2. You have Ruth, and there's a book written about the life of Ruth. 
And then you have, well, we don't have a name, but we know the name, I think, the wife of Uriah. Does anyone know that name? Bathsheba. But I think Matthew gives us not her name, but instead the wife of Uriah for, for a reason. God works through the most unlikely of people. And here in the genealogy of a, a king, we have four women highlighted significance for what God has done through women to bring about his Messiah. But you'll notice also these women, at least three of them, were Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab was an Amorite, and Ruth was a Moabite. And so while the fathers in this genealogy are from the line of Abraham, not all the women were. There's debate on why, why that's important or significant or what Matthew is trying to highlight there. Perhaps God is indicating that his work is both for Jew and Gentile, going back to the promise of Abraham. That you will be a blessing to all nations and actually even through all nations this Messiah would come. Perhaps it is to remind us that the work of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile and men and women and makes them one in Christ. Whatever the reason, their inclusion, even not a women, the, the woman issue aside, as Gentiles, their inclusion in a Jewish genealogy would be highly unusual, but God was showing that he was using even those who the Jews would consider unclean to bring about his Messiah. There's one other woman in this story that I would like to look at as we think about the lowly. We don't often think about Mary as the lowly. She's the last woman mentioned in this genealogy, but here's her own words from Luke chapter 1 and verses 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. How did Mary view herself? Not worthy to be the, the mother of the, of the Christ the mother of Jesus. She viewed herself as lowly. She was no one special, but God worked through her. I focused maybe some more of my attention on the women here in the genealogy, but we can also see God's work in the lowly, even from his selection of those in this, in this list who came from the smallest of clans the most unlikely of places. Do you remember when David was anointed king? It was like his dad forgot about him. Oh yeah, well, we have one more son. He's out in the field. He's just like a scrawny shepherd. I don't think you would want him. But yet, David was the one that God would choose as king to lead his people, the most unlikely of places or people to work through. God worked through the lowly. The second thing is we think about God's work through humanity, not only through the lowly, but through the broken and the sinful. You see, with every name we read, there's a life story behind these names. 
And maybe as I'm talking about and saying some of these names, you're already piecing things together. Hopefully, you've connected when I asked who the wife of Uriah was, Bathsheba, with David and his adulterous affair with her. But it was ultimately one of the offspring that would come from Bathsheba through Solomon that would continue, that would come to bring about the Messiah. There is one consistency in every life story in this record. And it is, it is a story of brokenness and sin. Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Judah, into an incestual relationship. Rahab was a prostitute, in the, at least in the earlier part of her life. I mentioned Bathsheba, and of course, David himself, who, having found out that she was pregnant, murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Abraham had a tendency to lie and deceive, and he himself committed adultery. Solomon had multiple wives. Many of the kings that you read listed from verses 12 to 16 were said to have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus comes from a dysfunctional family. It's a mess. The sinful lives of Jesus' ancestors brought shame, brought guilt, brought consequences. Sin always has a consequence. And yet, we see the thread of God's grace running through the lives of these individuals. God is wise and powerful enough to bring about his plan even when brokenness and sin seem to mess it up. God chose, I want, I want us to, if you write, take a notes, write this down. God chose, he wasn't forced to, he chose to work through the brokenness and through the sin of humanity. And by grace, these men and women were used to bring about the Messiah, who ironically came to bring an end to brokenness and sin. From the moment Adam and Eve fell in sin in the garden, Satan thought he won. I messed it up. I messed up God's creation. This is great. At every moment of sin and brokenness in the lives of these individuals, the sins of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and David and Solomon, we could go on and on because every one of these people listed here were sinful. The sin of Mary and Joseph themselves. At every moment of that sin, those sinful actions, Satan thought he had won. But God was still working and his plan never faltered. And it was through fallen humanity that he would bring about the Son of Man. Jesus, who was made like us, yet Hebrews 4.15 tells us, yet he was without sin. So that one day, he could take our sin and our brokenness and offer to us life. And just as God was at work through broken people then, he is working through broken people today. Th those are the only people that he works through. 
Our last song that we sang really depicted this point very well. Because it really echoes the words from the book of James. James chapter 4 and verse number 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, I don't, I don't know the story of your life this morning. I don't know the things that you, you're going through. Maybe some, of, maybe some of the stories of these people resonate with you. The brokenness and the pain that, that they would have gone through. The story of your life isn't written because of your family or your past. Friend, whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through right now, there is grace found in Jesus Christ. God delights in working through our brokenness. He delights in, in working through our sin. He doesn't delight in our sin. But there's nothing that you and I have done or can ever do that God cannot use to bring about His glory. And if you're willing, if you will humble yourself, he will, he will turn your sadness into joy, your ugliness into beauty, your fear into rest. Recognize your sin and look to him this morning. God has worked in humanity. God has worked with humanity. God has worked through humanity and the last thing, and this is where we'll end, God ha- let's look at God's work for humanity. Now, this is not something where I looked at this, this portion of Scripture in the genealogy and, you know, that's, and pulled it out from this text, but you ask the question, why has all this been done? Why has God worked the way that he has from the past? Well, he's done it for us. All of his work has been done for you and for me. The creator very well could have said, you know what, these people messed up my perfect creation. Let them have what they deserve. Let them have their sin. If they think it's better to live without me, go right ahead and walked away. But that's not who our God is. Our God doesn't fail. He is not defeated. He doesn't come out on the losing end of things. And neither do we if we trust in Him. For all the work that God has done, the effects of His work, that is forgiveness and rest and life, they are only possible when we turn from our sin and put our trust in the Messiah, Jesus. This is the call of the gospel. This is the call for everyone listening this morning. You see, the hope of the season, this season, the hope of our lives is found in God's work for us. Christmas is a celebration of what God has done. And friend, he has done it for you. He loves you. He cares for you. So the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is a story about the work of Scrooge. And really the lesson that we learn from that story that we walk away with is be a better person. 
The story that Matthew gives is about the work of God, that he has sent the greatest person, and it's in him that you will find love, joy, peace, and hope. May we rest in and see the work that God has done for us.